The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw. I'm your host for today's episode that features Dr. Lamisha Hill. So Dr. Hill has many areas of professional expertise, all of which will intersect in today's conversation. Um, So those areas are diversity, equity, and inclusion, the Black Lives Matter movement, mental health, and COVID-19. So the reason that her professional specialties span all of these areas is she is director of multicultural affairs for the Office of Diversity and Outreach at the University of California in San Francisco. Um, She's also a licensed counseling psychologist and has a PhD in psychology. So this will be an interesting conversation that touches on many really topical areas right now. Welcome to the show, Amisha. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, and so it's a so Amisha, as as you and I have talked about previously, um, we are doing you know a lot on the on DNI um, in the PR industry, not just on the back of the Black Lives Movement. This is something that we've been covering for a long time. Obviously, we've amplified it recently. Um, you know, and, and I was thinking about two areas that I had covered recently. I'd, I had done a series on mental health in the PR industry because it's a it's a high stress work environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, you add on top of that being a person of color in this business that I believe is, I think the latest stat is like 89% white and some of the added feelings of isolation and tokenism that can, that can contribute. So, so there's a lot we're going to cover on today's episode. We're going to talk about the mental health component and then we're also going to talk about the DNI role and how the industry can make that role most effective. Yeah. So, and, and Lamisha, just, I, mean, I want to give people context around how I know you. Um, my, my neighbor is Bedford Palmer, who you have a podcast with, or had a podcast with. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Dr. Bedford Palmer and I uh, created a podcast. Uh, he founded this podcast called Naming It. And um, together we spent a couple years uh, in this virtual awesome medium uh, that, it, that continues to be a really important space, talking about the intersections of Blackness, psychology, and social justice. And so the podcast was really started in 2014, um, really on the heels of the original uh, kind of movement for Black lives. And uh, because of all the national discourse, it really took its own shape. Uh, So originally we were like, what are we gonna talk about? He and I can talk all day, but what are we gonna do with this space? Um, And because of our attention and our wanting to kind of center in in that way, it was just an opportunity to give it that direction. Um, But within the podcast, we have great conversations around intersectionality um, and really, just this uh, phrase of naming it as being an important opportunity to call in and call out the different sort of invisible elephants that are in uh, many, many rooms in many, many spaces and how it's important uh, to give voice to those things and to center on uh, voices that are oftentimes not heard or left on the margins. Yeah, so I'll, I'll include a link to that to that podcast and some folks that want to re- visit some of those episodes. Um, they are as relevant as ever right now. Um, so you mentioned it started in 2014 on the back of the kind of the start of the Black Lives Movement. And I, let me tell you, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that evolution from 2013 to 2020 and what's changed in your opinion, because obviously this is not, this is not a new movement. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for the listeners that may not know, uh, Black Lives Matter was founded by uh, three amazing uh, Black women, uh, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tomete. And they formed this organization after the acquittal of George uh, Zimmerman in the murder of Trayvon Martin. And, um, you know, at that time, and then following in that moment, there were so many other really visible and powerful um, and really tragic losses of life and the opportunity to proudly uh, affirm that Black Lives Matter was met with so much resistance uh, in 2014. And if we just get a chance to kind of juxtapose uh, this, this very cyclical, I kind of think about it as a spiral stair staircase, right? Uh, we come around these moments again and again. And what my hope is that is different about this moment and uh, this 2020 uh, movement for Black Lives is that we can unequivocally uh, center in on Black Lives in a way that we couldn't in 2014, right? Uh, in 2014, that there was this debate around all lives matter and why uh, why could, why why was there a need to center in on Black lives? And so, if we uh, examine and look a little bit more closely, that the experiences that have been happening historically, although folks really want to be ahistorical, we don't have to go that far back in time for folks that don't want to go all the way back to you know 1619 and uh, that whole thing. But check out the 1619 project if you want that historical reference. Uh, we don't have to go that far back, but you do need to understand those foundations because they still show up uh, today. So it, it is really critical. But in terms of uh, really recognizing that the experiences that are affecting uh, at the intersections of anti-Black racism, police violence, and other forms of marginalization and subjugation uh, happen across many, many different spaces and have real impact on people's lives, their livelihood, and their access to breath and air and freedom. And um, so in that sort of comparative way, uh, you know, here we find ourselves in 2020, and I do hope that people understand the, the importance of centering in on Black lives, uh, really in the spirit of targeted universalism. And if, even if you juxtapose that right alongside COVID-19, uh, we, we know everyone showed up to COVID-19 uh, in this, like, we're all in this together moment. Um, but we have stopped talking about the disparate uh, infection and death rates that are, that, are, that are being had on communities of color, and particularly Black communities and Latinx communities, and Native American communities as well. So it is important to kind of have that targeted perspective uh, at when there is a, a community um, moment. So, so a lot there that I wanted to touch on. One is, you know, you've mentioned that what was different this time is um, people are willing to say Black Lives Matter in a way that they weren't in 2014. Um, what do you think finally made us hit that tipping point? Like one of the things, you know, I've absorbed, you know, observed is brands and um, companies are saying Black Lives Matter and they weren't saying that um, in 2014. They weren't saying that even, even in 2016. Um, what, what changed or even I, I mean, thinking about 2018 and when there, you know, we had the Charlottesville you know, white supremacy marches, right? And there was a lot of talk about um, zero tolerance for hate, standing up for hate, but what's different this time is I think the language and I'm curious as to what do you think shifted? You know, that's, that's really hard to say. I wish uh, people in industries uh, who uh, changed gears and made a change of pace and uh, were, were not able to be in that moment 
uh, could actually, and leaders in those spaces can really come forward and, and, and say, why now? What is different? Um, because for many folks, it hasn't been different. We've just been waiting uh, for people to come on board. And I think that that is also part of the process of uh, how long it takes for people to have an honest reckoning with um, what is what is reality and what is real. Mm -hmm. And I would say that with all of those things, and, and thank you for adding in Charlottesville and you know everything in combination, these are not isolated incidents and nor is the uh, the disparities that are impacting um, black communities across different spaces, whether it's in education, whether it's in employment, right? We are here in the Bay Area, so whether it is in representation in many different industries, um, it is a collective problem right. and it's, it's going to require a collective solution. So it's beautiful to see the murals uh, happening, you know, in DC and New York City and and for people to recognizing actually that uh, writing letters on the street is a mural, right? That is art. Um, and it's not only art, but it's art activism. So. so so, then I also want to touch on something else that you talked about, about sort of the, the having a more targeted approach. Because, you know, in the past and even now, when I have conversations with people in, in the PR industry, sometimes it's a conversation about people of color. Sometimes it's a conversation about Black employees. Sometimes it's black and brown, and I don't know who that includes and excludes. I, I mean, how do we need to think about the language that we use in this moment, in this situation? Um, is it underrepresented groups? And like, yeah, I mean, it just, there doesn't seem to be a consensus around that. Yeah, this is, that's a wonderful question. So um, I want to start uh, first giving honor and recognition to Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw who um, you know, really developed and has been championing the term intersectionality. And so one part, I wanna say that black lives are intersectional. And so when we anchor and center in on black lives, it is not at the exemption or the exclusion of LGBT, uh, people who are undocumented. Uh, there are plenty of intersectional Afro-Latinos out there in the world, um, but there is an importance to recognize that there's something very unique that happens at the intersection of, of two marginalized identities. And that's what uh, Dr. Dr. Crenshaw uh, refers to intersectionality, when not just in the spirit of both and, uh, having multiple identities, but two, two marginalized identities. So there's something unique that happens in that moment. I'm also gonna bring in another, uh, one of my favorite thought leaders, uh, Professor John A. Powell uh, from the Haas Institute of a Fair and Inclusive Society, who really uh, developed a lot of language and a lot of pieces around this concept of targeted universalism. And the example that Professor Powell really always goes back to, uh, and I think it's a really helpful one, is uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And if we think about the presence of different things in our environments, whether it is curb cuts or um, handholds, if, if anyone's ever gonna go back on public transportation, right? Um, so when the curb meets the street and there is a yellow placard, uh, no, that is not there to give you traction on a rainy day. That was built for somebody to be able to access the built environment in such a way, yet everybody uses the curb. Everybody benefits. And so when we can actually advocate for targeted interventions and targeted strategies for our most marginalized community members uh, to really create equity, right? If we want to recognize um, 
uh, and achieve equity, we have to recognize first that everyone is not positioned uh, in the same way in our environments, in our spaces, whether that's professionally, whether that's in your organizations, whether that's in health, whether that's in education, et cetera, et cetera. So first part is, is honoring and recognizing that we're not, we're, that folks, uh, because of different barriers to entry and different experiences, um, that everyone's not in the same place. And so the needs and the resources need to be tailored to actually be able to achieve that level of equity in the outcome, right? So we can't stand at the outcome. We can't stand at the, at the end and say, well, how come there isn't, um, why is everybody not, you know, here, uh, you know, with, with me standing at, here at this, like, you know, invisible finish line. Uh, and partly it's because they didn't start from the same place. Um, so I really think that that's important to recognize and really advocate that when we actually create equity, everybody benefits. So it, we don't have to get into this zero sum game conversation. Um, and I would say that many industries and many organizations um, have engaged in work from this perspective of, in, of inclusion. And I could go on uh, on a little bit of a tangent and a rant. So let me know if you had another question before I. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I think that's treating it like a zero-sum game is something that's worth thinking about, especially for organizations and to protect people, people from backlash, right? Mm -hmm. um, this idea of, I mean, we, so we, um, you know, we, we actually put out our own metrics as a media company around, you know, targets that we're going to hold ourselves accountable to at our events when we have judging and things like that. And it was tongue in cheek, but I did get um, a few messages on the back of that from white men saying, I guess I'm never going to get to be a judge again or something like that. And mm. then like, treating this like a zero sum game that if we're elevating certain voices, it's going to be, it's going to mean that folks are going to lose out. So I, I, how do you, how do you, I mean, do you have any thoughts on how organizations can handle and deal with the fact that there is going that, that it's, it is treated this way and how can we present it and make it clear that, it doesn't have to be or yeah i think that we actually need to unpack what are these terms mm -hmm. um you know what is diversity what is inclusion what is equity what is belonging right uh and so just to, to start with uh inclusion because i think that that's the one that gets i think it confused the most right uh inclusion is a demonstration uh, particularly in organizations when there is an opportunity for everybody whether it's in your workforce or your team uh, to really have an opportunity to bring their best selves, uh, to participate fully, to be engaged fully, and to have um, some agency in the decision-making process and to be included and have a seat at the table, right? And so if we want to achieve any of our missions, whether it is uh, something uh, as wonderful as a scholarship or a promotion uh, of a, an event or elevating, you know, that that next generation and having judges in that example that you just gave us, Archie, it's an opportunity to say, hey, you know, we need to actually have that uh, those voices in that way. What inclusion gets, I think, confused with is uh, everybody, mm. Mm. right? So if we understand that inclusion is actually making sure that people have a seat at the table to fully participate, uh, inclusion, I think, gets gets. Uh, interpreted uh, intellectually. Now think about it just like a diversity umbrella, right? And we pop open the umbrella and we wanna make sure that we have um, sort of uh, everyone in that conversation. And while that there may be points in times where I think that that's valuable and really, really important, that actually isn't the definition of inclusion, mm -hmm. yep. right? So I think we, we get a little bit lost when we come with these uh, 
uh, packages, right, that are distributed and talked about. And that gets back to the conversation that you just kind of made a point around, around uh, the, the terminology and are we talking about people of color or, you know, now there's another trending term, Black Indigenous POC, so BIPOC, right? So what are we really talking about um, and why are we doing it in that way? And I think that partly it's the history of the pushback that people have received when they have tried to advocate for themselves, mm -hmm. right? To say, well, what about this group and that group and this group and that group? And all that is very true. Um, but there, we are not actually competing for resources, I don't think, right? If we, if we really uh, think about that effectively. Um, and there is not a zero sum game, right? Mm -hmm. So we can actually have targeted approaches that create inclusive practices that can drive equity in policy and in action uh, in such a way that inclusion is thought about not in the not in just the the umbrella of of DEI, uh, but that is really thought about in a little bit more strategic and intentional way. You know, it, it almost seems like because people are so unclear around what language to use, which groups to target, that it it you know that it. it it contributes to this fear, right, of even having the conversation, right? I mean, I remember um, just as the, the the 2020, the most recent Black Lives Movement was getting a lot of momentum, I found some threads on Twitter this for, of, you know, mostly was mostly white folks that were basically saying, I'm, I'm afraid, like, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, I'm afraid of being tone deaf, or I'm afraid of using an outdated term. Um, and, and I, you know, and I, 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 I mean, how can we have these conversations that are uncomfortable? In, 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 you know, so in a way that people don't feel like, okay, well, I'm going to use the wrong term. Do we say African-American? Do we say black? Like, what's the right, like they're, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a, that's a two-parter. Uh, I, I so appreciate you bringing that in. Um, number one, we need to stop saying that talking about DEI or race is hard. Yeah. And there are a couple reasons for this. One is that it actually reinforces something in our nervous systems, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you there is a bi-directional relationship between our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. And so you, if you are primed with a thought of something being hard, it is going to activate something differently, even if it's the same um, level of elevation, right? When we get activated, right? If you were, when you were introducing me, I was activated. Probably when you started the podcast out, you were probably activated, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we know that we have the ability to move through that, right? Yep. Um, and to say, wow, I'm excited in this moment. And that's also another piece. What do you call that activation? Do you mm -hmm. say that it's hard, right? And, mm -hmm. and how does that impact our behaviors? And what I think that we see is this moving away, right? Mm -hmm. Is because uh, either act in action or in silence. Moving away from the conversation is because we have reinforced this narrative uh, cognitively, but also neurologically that this is hard. Right? And so we have conditioned our bodies, right? When we get activated around the subject matter, whether it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, or specifically race, uh, particularly in our Western American uh, context, that people learn and teach themselves to stop. Yep. Right? And yep. so then now this is reinforced, that I've been activated and my response is that I stop and I don't proceed. Mm -hmm. In any other way, you, if you are going to give a presentation at work, you get activated, absolutely, you're, you're nervous, you're anxious, and you proceed, right? Um, so I think that's one part is that we need to stop calling it hard because it reinforces something in our, in our bodies and in our nervous systems. Mm -hmm. Secondly, 
you know, and that pairs right into, I think, the work of Robin D'Angelo and white fragility, uh, is that that fragility gets reinforced in a whole number of problematic ways. Um, whether it is from maintaining the status quo, of, of maintaining this sense of, of this need for, of, of safety and, and comfort uh, in such a way that I think is just, just really, really problematic. So, and the third part is, well, then how do we do it, right? If I am activated and if I do think that it's hard, um, I think one part is that, that we got to do the work, right? Mm -hmm you work through hard things all the time. And I think that there are things that are way harder than talking about equity and talking about race, right? For one right now, like solving, you know, the problem of COVID-19, that is hard. That is, that is legitimately hard. Uh, having conversations and affirming people's identity in the world, that should not be hard. Affirming someone's humanity, that should not be hard, right? So, so let's get real about what's difficult and, and what shouldn't be difficult. Wow. I mean, I, I think, I think you just um, said the headline for this podcast, which is we need to stop saying that, um, that calling DNI hard. Like, I think that's, that's just such a game changer, right? In terms of people's thinking and mindsets around um, approaching this issue. It's like, it's, we've stigmatized it so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can go into more work. And so funny, like last night I was well, actually this morning writing a little piece about this uh, because it has been something that I have been ringing the bell on. Uh, there are some other perspectives that go into that, which is also a concept around stereotype threat. Mm. Um, and so the threat I think is real and the activation is real. Um, and uh, Dr. Claude Steele uh, has done, uh, you know, a lot of his body of work as a social psychologist on stereotype threat, which is in essence like this this experience that that anyone could have when there is an aspect of their identity uh, that is the target of a stereotype, either positive or negative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the context, when it gets activated, it actually takes up cognitive space in such a way that it, it can impact performance. Um, and they did a particular research study around uh, the sort of the construct of the white racist, right? And so when people, uh, an experiment with students, and I can give you a link on it, but in essence, the task was to organize a group of chairs in a room. And the sort of control part was, you're gonna talk about something uh, benign like sports, uh, white students and, and black identified students, you're gonna talk about sports, uh, can you please organize the chairs? And the white students put the chairs in a circle, right, to talk about sports, and chairs went close together. When they were prompted, and you're, now you're gonna talk about race, right, in the same experiment, or in a parallel experiment, the chairs went further apart. So how did the researchers understand why do people move away uh, and this is a, a critical piece is that they actually assessed and did some and had an opportunity for, for people to self-report on, you know, what was their commitment or how did, you know, what, what were their values around inclusion or around equity? And those self-reported values were high. And I think it gets back to what you're saying that, that people care, right? Um, but that the threat gets elevated in such a way that they move away. Yeah. And I think that that's a, an important piece to understand as well. Um, so moving towards how do how do we inspire people to move towards these conversations uh one part i think it's also that people need to do their work um do the work right uh do the learning right if you don't know what the what the what the term is uh do the reading uh, right now that we are in shelter in place there are so many webinars right yep. that are accessible that we can go back to you know podcasts like yours or trending and pot, you know, there's just so much information out there. You have to do the work uh, in, in educating yourself. 
Secondly, is around engaging in cultural humility practice, which is uh, developed by Dr. Melanie Turbidon and Dr. Jan Marie Garcia. So that critical self-reflection and that lifelong learning, recognizing that power differentials are real and that they exist. And I would just say thirdly, an another part is actually um, not having these conversations in a way that um, doesn't name whiteness. Um, that when we talk about, and I think there's an importance around centering black voices uh, and centering on, on uh, this moment, particularly that is targeting uh, black identified folks in the community and anti-black racism, mm -hmm. but we also need to talk about whiteness. Uh, because we have also reinforced this 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 dynamic where it's either um, only POC that are being asked and tasked, and I think this is the conversation you wanted to have next about like being asked and tasked to do the work and educate other people um, and all of that additional emotional labor, and that needs to shift as well. Right. And so when you have an organization, so like on the back of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, I spoke to many agency leaders and many of them, all of whom I spoke to were white, um, said that they reached out specific, you know, directly to their black employees. Some of them reach out specific to, to all employees of color to ask them what they need and what they can do. Like, what do you think about that tact? And, and, and to me, that seems fair because you're asking, you know, do you want to step up or do you not? Or, or is, or, or is that problematic? I'm like, yeah. Well, I think, I think the query is fair, um, but there are like so many handouts and, and toolkits trending around, you know, what is allyship? Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think the check-in part and seeing people and affirming them is, is part of allyship. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I invite people to pair that with an offering. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to ask somebody, Hey, Hey, how are you doing? Knowing that they're likely very impacted, knowing that the answer is that, probably they're not okay. How am I gonna show up with an offering, right? What would that look like based on my resources, my area of expertise, my positionality in an organization, my power, my privilege? What would it look like to pair that inquiry, right? That I think is an important inquiry uh, and be ready to actually have an offering. Yeah, I, and what could that look like? Yeah, uh, I think that that's like allyship in action. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is, I think, recognizing in one part, and this, I think this is the other place that you wanted this conversation to go, um, is around racial trauma mm -hmm. and recognizing that racial trauma is real. And so for, for many, uh, particularly Black identified folks in this moment, they are showing up when they should be calling out. And nobody is giving them permission to. Uh, nobody is acknowledging that they're actually moving through the world in grief and trauma and pain, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's also people who might be leaders in your organization. Maybe it's the people that are, that are doing all the work and holding all the space and maybe doing that in a way that they feel uh, that it's important enough for them to kind of step into that work. Um, but I think that, that just giving voice and recognition to to racial trauma is really important to be able to recognize that part of that offering is uh, giving people space, giving people permission to take a step back, uh, taking work and load off of people rather than adding more stress. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on the parallels of that, 
you know, that could look different, like in a small team to be like, hey, uh, this next, you know, hot topic project just came in. And I know you, you were sharing with me about like working in high stress environments. What would it be like to not stress out your colleague when you know that they're, that they are probably going through some additional grief and bereavement, right? Right. What would it be like to, to actually think about, oh, you know, maybe let's call in uh, someone else who uh, might be able to have uh, that additional kind of battery reserve uh, in the tank, right? Um, if it is for folks that are in parallel organizations and maybe have a unique skill set and a unique uh, resource, what would it be like to offer that? And a perfect example uh, in my work uh, we received a ping from a company that had um, some access to technology resources, and they were offering, "Hey, you know, we want to we want to show our solidarity in this moment. Mm -hmm. We've got some pro bono hours. Uh, please let us know how we might be able to assist you in your work." Right? Yeah. And so that resource doesn't always have to be money. Right. Right. It can look like your area of expertise, your gift, your talent. And it's and I'm going to parallel this right back to COVID-19. And for the listeners in this moment, if you can think back to when you knew that the pandemic was real and maybe already you could share this with me too. Like if you ran around your house looking for all of your extra mini hand sanitizers from conferences, if you were figuring out how to sew up homemade masks, if you were gathering up your Lysol wipes, uh, if you were checking in on your neighbors, if you were supporting people in, in different ways, if you were making food kits and food baskets, if you were doing something for somebody else with the spirit of love and the spirit of generosity, you mobilize yourself to the best of your ability, right? You didn't need someone to tell you, how could you help? Yeah. You stepped up in some way that you know how. And it's with that same love, it's with that same compassion that people need to step up in this moment and right. not see it as being different. Yes, yeah, and I think into your point about about toolkits, um, I know I know you developed one um, a toolkit for allyship, which I will include a link to um, here in the notes for folks that want to look at that. Um, I want to go back to the DNI officer because that's something the industry has had that role. So PR agencies in particular have had many of them have had that role for I I want to say over maybe at least five to seven years, probably longer. I am actually in the process of trying to figure out when there was the first DNI officer at a peer agency. Obviously that role hasn't been as effective as one would like. Um, the industry, like I said, is still about 89% white. What, you know, as someone from outside the industry, what have you seen is effective and how does that role need to be positioned in order to actually have the impact? That yeah, that, that's a great question. And I want to start by just acknowledging that um, the challenges, uh, whether if we look at these metrics from our outcome perspectives as representation, um, as um, movement in hiring and um, promotion and advancement, if we look at it uh, from the outcomes of engagement results or belonging reports, uh, we see, right, that there are ongoing disparities. And yet that doesn't mean that work hasn't happened. And I think it's an opportunity to really think, uh, you know, dynamically and critically about it. Um, because I think it, it is very, very, very complex. So when it comes to, um, I think, positioning um, DEI roles in an organization, uh, one part is making sure that those, those organizations and those teams are well-resourced, right? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they are offices of one or few. And um, that's just not effective, right? Mm -hmm. 
So having um, a, a, a real seat at leadership tables and decision-making tables, mm -hmm. um, being valued in that way, I think is deeply important. Mm -hmm. And I would say a second part is recognizing that that work cannot solely be done and should not solely be done um, by the DEI team. That actually equity is everybody's responsibility, right? And so every manager, every team group, right? Because even in our organizations, we are often um, concentrated in our different work teams and our different workspaces, right? Uh, with all of the sort of hierarchy and the organizational charts that go with that. Um, so really, it's everybody's responsibility. So how do we make sure that equity is part of everybody's work, mm -hmm. um, that we are thinking about it in the ways that we work with one another, mm -hmm. and we're thinking about it in the ways in which we are serving, um, whether that is in your output, mm -hmm. or your target audience, or your users, or your engagement. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of having this be the responsibility of everyone within an organization and not just centered in, you know, around one person, um, are, I mean, do you think, how, how do you think you, that should be done? Should it be part of their performance evaluation? Um, or is it something that should just be part of the culture and reinforced by leadership as a, as a value? Yeah, I think, I think uh, as a psychologist, I'm going to say both and. Mm -hmm. um, because there will always need to be, and given that we are working with people, there will always be a human element. And so the interpersonal work, uh, mm -hmm. whether that is for individuals around their own learning and growing, will always need to happen. Um, the team-based work of how do people communicate with one another, how do we raise our awareness to our blind spots, to our unconscious biases, uh, is, is deeply, deeply important. And we also need to examine our policies and our practices to make sure that equity is uh, embedded in our structures and our systems so that it's not contingent on one individual or um, an individual doing the good or the right thing in that moment. Um, and I think we see this all the time in um, I think there's a lot of evidence that in this in sort of the recruiting and HR landscapes, right? Uh, just because some of those processes have so many steps in them, right? Um, and people uh, in their decision-making processes move and enact in, in ways that, that may not always uh, really uh, come in an, in an outcome that uh, is their intention in that moment. So I think that both end is really important. Uh, and I really think that rooting things in structure and inequity is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an opportunity to uh, think about the work that's already being done, uh, whether that's different groups, um, different charges, different task forces, different working teams. How do we make sure that they are pivoting their work to have that equity lens, right? So I want to go back to, you know, we kind of address some of the mental health questions with when you spoke about the offering and, you know, dealing with this moment, especially the month of June. Um, I, I want to broaden that out. So if you are, you know, like you said, I mean, PR is a really high stress environment. It's very deadline driven. Every It's 24 hours. It's There's client service involved. Um, beyond this moment where it, this is top of mind or, you know, like I said, agency leaders are reaching out to their, to their employees, their black employees, their employees of color. Beyond this moment, how can organizations sustain prioritizing mental health of black employees, of people of color um, in a way that's different than probably what white employees experience? You know, I know the PR industry is known for, I mean, this was pre-COVID times, right? I mean, they, they fueled much by alcohol. Um, that was a stress reliever. And as millennials increasingly were not looking to just, you know, 
drink alcohol every day after work, they were starting to implement things like Pilates classes and, you know, like other forms of wellness, right? Mm -hmm. um, mental health is something that has been quite stigmatized in the industry for a long time. It was only in the last few years that, you know, just crying at your desk or crying in the bathroom is suddenly considered to be unacceptable, it seems. And, you know, agencies are starting to have that conversation about mental health and about stress. So I wanted to kind of take that same conversation and target it specifically around Black employees and around people of color um, and what organizations need to be thinking about. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful question. And I appreciate you kind of starting it by framing sort of this sort of old guard um, mentality. And uh, in many industries and in many organizations, there is this kind of passing on of, of really problematic and traumatic ways of doing work, right? Uh, because that's how it's always been done. And we went through it. And so you guys got, y'all got to go through it too in the same way. And I think that people are learning that we can um, work better and work in ways that are um, uh, healthy, right? And just that shift of like, everything is not sort of um, party or, or extrovert driven, um, that there's an opportunity to incorporate that, that piece of wellness. One part around mental health that I think is really important is recognizing um, that the demonstration, and I started out by talking about racial trauma uh, as being real, but the, de de the demonstration of of pain and sadness and grief uh, looks very different in different communities. Um, for many communities, uh, regardless of identity, people have been socialized that um, kind of not showing up and not being okay is not acceptable and that they're not going to be given a pass. Mm -hmm. And so even if we look and especially PR, you all have a, a great moment around this of humanizing, you know, are protests actually demonstrations of pain? right? Are those tears in motion? Can we see um, through anger and sadness, ex or excuse me, anger and sort of this like uh, expression of the energy, can we actually read it as pain and as grief? Mm -hmm. I think that's one part, is, uh, is having more nuanced and having more compassion uh, for the way that that is expressed, mm -hmm. um, first and foremost. And secondly, is an opportunity for access and recognizing that that may, may look very different for folks. And so um, the practices of community-based healing and restorative healing is really important. Um, folks are, in many spaces, are utilizing um, affinity groups, not just for learning, but also as spaces to, to promote healing um, and doing that in a way that it's, that it's not set apart from our work. So creating access, creating opportunity. Uh, many organizations have a tie to mental health through their uh, faculty and staff assistance programs or different um, resources that are there. And I think the question is, how are, how are those folks that are, that are charged to do that work, how are they anchored and able to meet the needs of, of in this moment, right, uh, the Black identified community? How, and if not, how are they partnering and elevating and employing and supporting and creating access to that work that's being done in other spaces mm -hmm. so people can have access to that without having to go get it on their own, right? So one part, if we, if we find ourselves in a space to say, wow, uh, actually our, our, our work is really homogenous or um, our teams that do wellness are really, really homogenous. We haven't thought about wellness um, from a culturally congruent way. Okay, 
Now you know, so you get to pivot and you get to learn. And while you're doing that pivoting and while you're doing that learning, create access and invest in that so that folks can get that, that, that wellness and that health met and those mental health needs met uh, in the current moment and not have to sort of figure out how to do that on their own. Yeah. So reducing barriers to entry is part of it. Yeah, and I think as it becomes more clear that COVID-19, in this country anyway, is, is it's with us for the long haul and it's not, um, it's not a momentary thing. And I think that the mental health situation, and especially as different communities are being impacted in different ways, it's, it's only going to be amplified. I mean, it seems like because the longer we're in this situation, the longer we're isolated, it just seems like we're, we're I don't know if organizations of companies are prepared for the mental health toll. I mean, on, especially on communities of color, working parents. I mean, this is, this is getting to be, um, I don't know, it seems like we're going to hit a crisis point on this. Right. And in such a, and in such a strange way, there's been uh, such a, a powerful impact, you know, with COVID-19, but in many uh, industries and organizations, their work has actually um, expanded exponentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think alongside that, it's important to recognize that, yes, we are sort of in this economic crisis in parallel, uh, but we can't continue to do more work uh, with less resources. And so I think we also need to have a reckoning around um, layering on additional stress and additional burden on folks that are already taxed and are already really, really maxed in many different ways, whether it's like you mentioned. Uh, if you didn't know what, what privilege was or if you were thinking about uh, power and privilege from a very intellectual space, hopefully uh, COVID-19 has, has made us all have a human moment around um, differential lived experiences. Because if your world wasn't shifted in some way, um, I, don't, I don't know whose who's wasn't, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes people are now able to see more, right? To say, wow, like, not only do I have a job, but I have all the tools and the resources to work remotely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Wow, what, what might it be like to be an essential worker even if you're uh, highly highly employable or highly employed across many different industries, just to have to put yourself uh, in a physical risk every day yeah. by going into spaces. So yeah. it's really powerful. Right, no, I think the point about privilege, if people didn't understand it going before the crisis, I mean, gosh, like, um, so Levisha, this was a great, great conversation. Um, is there any final words that, you know, anything I didn't ask about that you want to mention? Let me think about that. Um, we used to ask this question on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> our question was, uh, are there any elephants that you would like to name uh, in, like in that, that spirit? Uh, but, I, but I like the closing words. And um, I think I just want to emphasize to the people that are listening is that, um, that we, well, I would say there's one thing that, that I didn't name. And that is that, um, that race is not real. And so if you are still stuck on being set apart from people based on how they look, it is not real. The impact on race and the differences that it has on health, outcome, um, life and livelihood is very real and we need to honor that, but we are not set apart from one another. And so just to kind of uh, hit home again, the same energy that you, that you stepped up in with the COVID-19 pandemic, apply that same love and compassion to this moment uh, so that as a collective consciousness, we can right really um, move through this. And I think that that's my hope. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Anisha.
thank you so much for having me and thanks for all the amazing work that you and Provoke are doing. So uh, appreciate your voice uh, in this work as well. Thank you. Thank you. And folks, we'll be back again in, in a few weeks with that with another episode. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.